0: Welcome to CB Talks, a podcast from SilverCloud by Amwell, a leading digital mental health platform specialising in the delivery of evidence-based care. I'm Dr. Daniel Duffy. I'm a digital health scientist and in CB Talks, I explore the science of digital mental health with leading mental health practitioners and advocates. Here at Amwell, one of our key focuses is providing technology and services which enable care delivery, anytime and at any place. Implementing these digital interventions requires a lot of work though, and it's not without its challenges. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Lisa Kerr and Rose Stewart, who will be sharing their own journeys with ADHD and discussing how we address and support ADHD in the workplace. So let's get into the conversation with Lisa and Rose. Rose, Lisa, thank you so much for joining me here today. And I'm not going to introduce you both because you two will do a much better job of that than I will. So, yeah, I'd love for you to take it away. Tell me about your experience you know, of living with ADHD and what that's been like for you, both in your personal lives and in your workplace. And so we'll start off with you, Rose, if that's okay.
1: So, uh, hi, I'm Rose. Um, I'm 28 and I live in Norwich. Uh, I was diagnosed quite late with ADHD. Um, uh, initially it was raised by my doctor in 2018 and I was diagnosed in 2020. Um, so for me, it was not kind of a typical journey that I expected. I'd never really understood ADHD beforehand. In fact, I remember my first comments saying to my doctor, actually, no, you have that wrong because I was really well behaved at school. Um, I've never jumped on tables. And uh, and yeah, my, my parents are, are really nice, normal people. So no, you are incorrect. And uh, my learning about ADHD has been enormous. It's definitely changed the way I see the world and I see myself and certainly changed my perhaps uh kind of prejudice against people who who have the condition now i have such a better understanding of it but um i'm hoping that by doing things like this i can help change other people's opinion as well that uh people with adhd are navigating life in a very different way um but what we experience isn't all bad and actually there are some really simple ways in which uh you can help someone with adhd
0: of course, and you've raised there, the conversation about these things is really, really important. And it's important that people use their voices to keep it going and to make sure others in their environment are aware. But Lisa, before we get into any of that, I'd love for you to intro yourself too.
2: Sure, no problem and great to be here. Um, so I'm Lisa Kerr, I'm 48 and I'm an ADHD coach and business consultant. And I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was 40 and autism when I was 45. So very much in that late diagnosis bracket. Um, and I was diagnosed when our son was diagnosed, as is the case for so many women my age, that it's only when one of your children goes through that process, and you're filling in all the forms, and you suddenly think, ah, okay, that, that's where he got that from then that, that will be me. <laughs> so I went and got diagnosed then. Um, and then that is what has led to me learning a lot more about neurodiversity in general, so I can support my son better, support myself better. Um, And then more recently, training as an ADHD life coach to try and support people in the workplace, try and help people with the challenges, but also educating businesses on how best to support neurodivergent staff. Because if you can support the challenges, you can get the best from the strengths as well
0: of course, so, so important. And there's about 20 questions I want to ask you already based on both of what you've both said. But before we dive into the deep stuff, what I'd really like to get a look at is you've both raised different experiences, different different periods of your life which you've been diagnosed. So the lived experience is different for everybody. So what does your ADHD, and for you, Lisa, your ASD and your ADHD, what does that look like on a on a daily basis
2: what does it look like is a great question in that to very many people it looks invisible so i do not fit the stereotype of young boy bouncing off the ceilings yeah i barely move i'm 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 quite sedentary in many ways and but what it looks like is hyperactivity of my mind. So Mm. for me, ADHD is about the fact that my brain never stops. There is never quiet. And that is including when I'm asleep. So common problem for ADHD is, is either the inability to get to sleep, which is certainly something I find quite tricky because you just can't stop the thoughts, but also quite poor sleep quality as well, because My brain just keeps processing all night. So I have incredibly vivid dreams and nightmares, mainly, never never great dreams, every night, which leads to kind of exhaustion, as you can imagine. Of course. Um, And autism feeds in in terms of not quite getting language right or not quite understanding what people are saying right. And similarly, facial expressions. So... Again, I can only speak for myself, but but something that a lot of people have said as well is you don't necessarily pull the facial expressions that people expect you to be pulling. And actually in the workplace, that has caused me problems where, for example, the previous boss said that she felt I was really patronizing and condescending in meetings. Mm. And I was just completely thrown. I was like, I, I truly have no idea what you're talking about And she described the face I was pulling when she was speaking with me. And again, I had to go away and kind of look in the mirror to to see what she was talking about. And it's because I just don't naturally pull the same facial expressions that other people might. and, And that is an autistic trait.
0: So Rose, what about you? Does any of that resonate? Is that similar to your story in any way?
1: Absolutely. It does. It does uh, resonate very much. And it's interesting what Lisa's saying about the the facial expressions. That isn't something I've personally experienced, but I do always have this feeling when I'm in conversations or when I'm with my friends or or anyone that I'm just very different to them. I can't quite put my finger on it because I act so much like them and I copy them and I do everything kind of the same, but I always just feel a little bit odd compared to everyone else. And like, and kind of like everyone's thinking it as well um so i can absolutely relate and quite often my reactions and responses aren't what people expect them to be and um, for me ADHD hmm. i probably do sit more like the you know the the little boy lisa describes bouncing off the ceilings i'd say that's actually quite accurate for myself um i'm very much hyperactive so for me um ADHD looks like fidgeting constantly you know talking excessively so please do shut me up if I do continue to talk for too long um trouble keeping on one topic making friends very quickly losing them again um those have always been my my key struggles and actually when you take one of those things on its own I think there's a common mistake that people say well I do that so I must have ADHD as well which goes back to that whole what does depression look like someone who's sad might not be depressed and just because you forgot your car keys um or just because you you're a bit of an overthinker an overtalker doesn't mean you have ADHD it's just someone with ADHD has all of those things all of the time um but yeah it's it's been an interesting journey getting to understand a lot of the quirks about myself perhaps aren't necessarily personality traits they are just just a a part of being me I think there's a common misconception that someone with ADHD is choosing to be lazy or scatty that's something in fact I had a colleague say to me just the other day saying oh people with ADHD it's just an excuse to forget an appointment or it's just an excuse to be late to work and it's it's we wouldn't do it with any other condition. You know, you would never say that to someone with, with depression. Of course. Oh, you're just making an excuse to go off work today. Or, um, so I'm not sure why it's acceptable to say it to someone with ADHD, but, um, actually. What I explained to him was the concept of, uh, this is just an example of time blindness. I have no concept of time. I don't know how long something will take me in the morning. I, I work entirely to alarms. My whole day is alarm set constantly. So when I'm brushing my teeth, when I'm doing my hair, when I'm having a shower, I have alarms going because otherwise I will be late. And inevitably I'm still late. Almost every day I'm late to work. If I and meeting friends, they always tell me a different time to the actual time they want me there. It's things like that, where I, it's so hard to get people to see where I'm coming from. I'm not chilling in bed, watching Netflix. I'm giving myself, (laughs) 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 I get up so early to get ready for work. I just lose track of time. And, um, the other place it it really hits me is feeling overwhelmed. I'd say that's probably the area I feel it most in my life. Um, And in the example of that was when I was on holiday and we had someone looking after our pet dogs and she'd run out dog food. And she messaged me saying, can you you know, I needed to order more dog food and I couldn't because I had no signal. And a rational person would think, oh, I'll just order some when I get to the hotel. Or, I mean, I was in hysterics. Mm. I had to stop the car because I was so upset about the fact I couldn't do it then and there. And I felt completely overwhelmed by this responsibility to get dog food for my dog. That's not a normal reaction. Most people wouldn't react that way. And it's just this feeling that the whole world is pressing on you when you're trying to complete your everyday tasks, they just feel unimaginably huge. And that feeling never really goes away. So things that are actually huge, like mortgages and marriages and work, can just feel out of this world overwhelming. And that's what I think, again, people need to understand about an ADHD brain is something that to them is second nature, something they go about every day, not even thinking about. Someone with ADHD finds that really hard.
2: There are a lot of things, Rose says, that, that I really empathize with but from a slightly different perspective. And again, this really shows you the contrast between one person with ADHD and autism and another person. Um, so I am, one of my autistic strengths is the ability to process data. So so my data and analytical processing is kind of off the scale, which means that my career, which was chartered accountant and then corporate finance, I was looking at figures, financial projections, reviewing businesses, and actually in that regard, having the kind of level of information that for Rose would be overwhelming, for me is a massive strength. Mm. So I love having an absolute overload of information in one area, but that would then lead me into hyper-focus on that. So where I have that kind of poor time management would be, I'll be so focused on something and so into that detail that I could lose four or five hours at a computer. I will forget to drink. I will forget to go to the bathroom. I even forget to blink. I actually have to have eye drops now because I get sore eyes because I literally forget to blink when I'm just in total hyper-focus mode. But what I can't do alongside that, and this again is where people find it so hard to comprehend this is I could be doing a really high level business project, but I still have an app on my phone that goes off at 10 to the hour, every hour that says stop drink. And that same app <clears throat> every morning says, do you need to defrost food for dinner? Because mm. you have a family and your family needs to eat. So it, it's that complete discrepancy between the things that you find easy and they will differ from person to person and the things that you find hard. And, and then very often not the logical things. Some, someone would say, how can you manage that? But you can't remember to take your washing out of the washing machine. And, and it's like, I know, isn't that a funny thing? Doesn't that sound like something that ought to be so straightforward? But that's not how it is at all. And the other kind of on that similar vein, The myths is the whole name itself. And and I mentioned earlier that hyperactivity Mm. doesn't necessarily mean what people think, but also the fact it's called attention deficit. It's not a deficit of attention. It's a deficit of the ability to regulate your attention. So you've just heard from Rose and me almost kind of the the two sides of that, of we're either hyper-focused, we've got all of our attention in one place, Mm. to the exclusion of everything else. Or we have a complete lack of focus when we've just got so many things going on that we can't get ourselves focused onto one thing. And for me, the biggest thing when I told people I had ADHD was they just said, but you can't have, you've got such an amazing attention to detail. You do Mm. due diligence as a living. And I said, I know that's because of autism and ADHD. That's why I'm so good at them. But it's why I'm so bad at other things.
0: I know myself from friends and colleagues who have ADHD, and from some who are still waiting to get diagnosed, that diagnosis is massive, Uh, even in Ireland. And I know in the NHS, massive waiting lists, years, months. And when we think about, you know, people making light of ADHD and saying, oh, I'm all over the place, that kind of you know, takes away a bit of the importance of actually getting to a diagnosis of ADHD. So for both of you, how important was your diagnosis in progressing forward?
2: For me, it was really, really important um, for a number of reasons, both ADHD and then autism. Um, One of the big traits of of ADHD and autism is rejection-sensitive dysphoria and also imposter syndrome. Mm. And they are two things that for me are really, really big challenges. So having a formal diagnosis is actually just so I feel like I'm not being a fraud. <laughs> even though when I looked into the conditions, it was so obvious in both cases that, that I had them, even though I really hadn't known that until it was kind of raised and until I, I went for that diagnosis. So I would have been amazed had I not got the formal diagnosis. But in my head, I was still thinking, I might not have though. I could be just making this all up because mm. I've just read some books and I'm good at reading books. So I've read the books and I've kind of projected these symptoms onto myself. So it was firstly the peace of mind and Knowing that once you know what the conditions are, you can look into it, you can understand it more, you can understand how to support yourself better. But also just that thing of kind of going, Yes, I didn't just make it up. It it's real and, and people can't kind of say, Oh, she's just she's just saying that. What was the
0: catalyst point to seeking diagnosis? You had mentioned that your son, you know, that that kind of it went your your diagnosis kind of went hand in hand together, but would you mind just maybe sharing that with us if that's okay?
2: Yes, certainly. um so the diagnosis the diagnostic process differs quite a lot between a d h d and autism. Mm-hmm. Our son was actually diagnosed with both of those conditions at the same time, mm. but because he was six at the time for a d h d which is very much questionnaire and kind of medical history based, he couldn't answer those questions about himself, and so I was the one who had to answer those questionnaires. And that meant, as I was going through them, the questions they were asking, and when I was answering for him, I really was thinking okay, and this is this is how I would answer it, even some of them where I would answer it very differently from him, mm. it was the fact those questions were there at all that really made me think whereas for autism, the diagnosis it's a much wider procedure, so the far Wider ranging tests. It's not purely based on kind of questioning how things are. Um, it's more, it's almost kind of like academic tests that that are carried out by the clinical psychologist, by occupational therapist, in our son's case, the educational um, therapist as well. And I wasn't in the room for most of those because. They don't need parents to input to them. Hmm. So I didn't even see what, what was going on in his diagnosis. And he was diagnosed autistic. And when we started to kind of research that and started to understand some of the ways that presented for him, I was absolutely convinced that I wasn't autistic because I could see the way his brain processes certain things, but I could see it from an objective perspective of saying, oh, that's how a very logical autistic brain would process that. That's not how my brain (laughs) works. Mm. And so it was actually only as our son got older, as he was kind of 10, 11, as he started to act more like a young adult rather than a child, that my husband actually recognised that some of the ways he was presenting reminded him of the ways I approach things. And I remember it's almost like a a comedy sketch. We were in the kitchen one evening and my husband was kind of stood by the oven and I was by the sink and he was closer to the back door than I was, as he kind of said. It was almost like he was thinking, "Hmm, if she just goes a little bit mad at me, I can get to the door faster than she can. (laughs) And he was like, I've just sort of noticed recently that some of of the things that Austin does kind of, similar to, to you. And have have you ever considered maybe you might perhaps have autism as well? <laughs> you know, like, tin hat, hat on. And and I think I was just ready, ready to hear it at that time. And I said, I've, I've never considered it because as I said, I genuinely thought I really didn't have it having considered it those few years earlier. And I said, but I'll look into it.
0: And then Rose, turning it over to you. So similarly to Lisa you know diagnosis what was the catalyst what was your story there what led you to the point and how basically was it really important for you
1: um, so mine was uh, like like I, I think I mentioned earlier it was it was a doctor saying to me I, I think everything you've told me just recognizing you as a person I think you might have ADHD and I was quite vehemently against mm. the idea of having ADHD so I, for me it was sort of I I I mean, the doctor needed the tin hat, Lisa suggests there, like I was ready to, I was ready to argue it. And, um, and I sort of ignored it for a couple of years. It was then actually over lockdown is when the first lockdown happened. And, uh, I was so against lockdown. I can't even describe, I know it's an awful thing to say, but I was, I was so angry at the world and I was like, I can't believe there's a bloke on the telly Mm. telling me that I can't see my mum. And, uh, it's when I started doing, I was put on furlough, so I had nothing to do. And I started looking into it. And the first thing that came up was, um, ODD, which is oppositional defiance disorder, which is where basically someone tells you Mm. that you shouldn't do something and you, uh, you kind of feel like you should, and you just, you just hate being told what to do. And I thought, Oh, actually, yes, this is, this is very me. Um, because even though I was a rule follower, At school it wasn't because I respected the rules it's because I don't like confrontation particularly but if someone tells me not to do Mm. something or if someone ticks me off for something I, I I feel a particular level of dislike towards them and actually I thought maybe my reactions to this pandemic are a bit over the top and that's when I sought out a diagnosis um for me diagnosis means obviously that like again, like what Lisa said, you're not making it up. Um it's not in your heads. You're not just reading things on TikTok and thinking, yeah, that must be me.
0: Just on the point of social media, you know, it's really important that we see a balanced narrative around these things. And I think, you know, even when you conceptualize conditions like autism, uh, ADHD, you even mentioned, Lisa, that you have your autistic strength. And it's important that those things are celebrated. But in regards to that balanced narrative, why is this such an important thing when it comes to discourse around ADHD?
1: Funnily enough, this is something I, I I mentioned when I was first contacted by your colleagues is I feel like we there needs to be a gentle balance about the the positives of having ADHD but also the, the negatives that come with it. Um, I see a lot of things at the moment about ADHD being a superpower. Um, it's, it's a really Mm. common catchphrase at the moment. Oh, I have ADHD. My brain is different, but it's my superpower. And I'm like, I have ADHD and it's a pain in the ass. I find it, (laughs) I think it's a nightmare personally. I'd get, I, would I, would I get rid of it tomorrow? Probably? Yes. But, um, but I think balance, like you say, is so important and, The rise of people talking about mental health on social media has also seen a lot of people sharing very openly their experiences, uh, which on the one hand, I think is brilliant. I think it's important for people to see inside the mind of others. Um, When we see it, we can start to empathize with it. But on the other Mm. hand, it does open up to two dangers. Number one being, as Lisa mentioned, people self-diagnosing after seeing, you know, someone forgot to drop their kids kids off at school and they think, oh, I did that once. So, okay, great. You must have ADHD. And the other is uh, kind of putting these high expectations on people with ADHD, you know, just because we hyper-focus on some things doesn't mean we hyper-focus on everything and not all of the time. Mm. Um, it's frankly, hyper-focused shifts I find really hard because, and it's also very hard in the people around me because for one week, n- nothing will matter more than my job and the next, nothing will matter more than my partner and then it will swap again. And so my job, my boss is left feeling like, wow what just happened we had rose working stupid hours last week and then this week she doesn't seem to have that same level of interest and then the following week my partner feels bereft because he's like my god she organized a date night every night last week and now she's ignoring me like
0: overwhelming
1: (laughs) completely it's very hard on the people around you (laughs) so uh so that's where i've i've tried to um I've tried to manage people's expectations of my condition. Uh, it's it's If you can make light and humour of something, that's always a good thing, but that, that doesn't mean that uh, the person's not going through quite a difficult time at the other end. And I think it's important social media shows a balance.
2: I have lots of thoughts on all of that. Um, so I I think social media is a blessing and a curse. There will be a lot of people who have recognize that they need to get a diagnosis off the back of information on social Mm. media there's also a lot of misinformation on social media um i don't personally use tiktok there's only so many social media channels i can cope with but there was um for example a canadian research study carried out last year um where they analyzed the 100 most popular adhd videos on tiktok Mm. and they found that um 52% 52% of them were misleading, 27% were based on people's personal experience, so clearly shouldn't be generalised, but were being used in a way that implied the generalisation. Mm. And only 22% of them were actually useful. So that that's quite a stark statistic. And similarly, I do go onto Instagram and, and there are a lot of people producing ADHD content on Instagram. mm some of it is really helpful, but I also find that it's almost like it's turning it into a joke of
0: I was every day is just that, video yeah.
2: after video of people get pulling a face going, oh, when I left all the kitchen cupboards open, oh, I forgot an appointment, oh, this, I'm, I'm like, when did it just turn into a comedy yeah. topic? <laughs> so for for me personally, my main platform, because I'm in the business world, is LinkedIn, and I do find there's a much better debate on LinkedIn because it's more kind of long form content. Mm. So people tend to have more discussion about ADHD and about neurodiversity in general. Um But you do also have the fact that the algorithms are a thing. So the only way people's content will trend is if they are putting those headline grabbing you know 10 top myths about this or one amazing thing you can do to cure your ADHD and and you think I understand why they're doing it they're doing it because they want their post to be the one that people see but it's just unhelpful it 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 turns it into kind of an entertainment topic rather than a disability
0: yeah, it's, it's, as you said, it's making light of something that people have to learn how to manage. And before it's managed, it can be quite disruptive. And, you know, just as you were talking, that was the one thing that was coming into my head that oftentimes it pops up on my feed that the exact same thing that you said. Oh, isn't it so funny that I left all the cupboards open that I left the gas on? No, actually it's, it's that, that could be potentially dangerous, but the funny music you're putting behind the video makes it seem somewhat comedic. And you even see that in regards to, you know, common mental health conditions, uh, you know, people not knowing where to reach out to find up to date and accurate information about how they can get treatment, about how they can access primary care psychology, all of those sorts of things. And I think that almost goes on to like the wider discussion of, you know, how do we, I I for one think it's really important to continue talking about these things to present that there is a balanced narrative out there that you know this is something that people have to learn to live with um it's not all funny it's not all roses sure there are there are positives but to present a balanced narrative but how do we how do we continue to fight stuff like that
1: I know for me The thing that would help me the most would be to crack that stigma. I I mean, that would just make Mm. an enormous help. And I think part of that needs to be the stopping of people self-diagnosing. And I appreciate a lot of people... Don't have access, or or on long ass waiting list. and it's sad, but it's one of those things. You know, you would never diagnose yourself with something else. Panic attacks has been talked about so much; it's become something that's very recognised, very normalised. People listen to you when you say you have have a panic attack. People care; they know what to do when you say you have ADHD. I am, and I imagine I don't know if it's the case. I imagine it's similar for autism. The response is incredibly different. There's a lot of oh, I know so-and-so has that. Oh, I'm a little bit that. And it's, it's so frustrating.
0: Going back to what we were talking about previously, how can we build that knowledge in the general population of, you know, this is accurate, up-to-date health information that you can reflect on and that you can think on. And perhaps it's the maybe the negatives in social media that are creating these thoughts and beliefs in people. And uh, I know the three of us aren't going to solve it right here, but Lisa, I'd be interested to know what you, you'd think as well
2: the we're all on the spectrum somewhere comment um i recognize that very often when people say that they're saying it with the best of intentions mm-hmm. they're actually trying to be kind of almost it's as if they're saying oh don't worry we're all on the spectrum somewhere aren't we as if it's okay don't worry it, it I, i'll forgive you for having autism or adhd because we're all on the spectrum somewhere aren't we um so i try Not to be unkind when people say that, but the way um, I explain this when when I'm doing talks and in corporates that, that goes down quite well that people seem to be able to grasp far more easily is I wear glasses and you can see that. Some of you may be wearing contact lenses. I can't see that. Some of you may. Some of you may not be. Some of you simply won't be because you can see without them we're not all on the visually impaired spectrum. Some of us are, some of us aren't. Those of us who are, will have glasses or contact lenses and we will have those made to the prescription that we need in the same way that each of us who is on the neurodivergent spectrum, and I use that term very specifically. So if we are neurodivergent, we are on the spectrum of neurodivergence And we will each be different in the same way that my prescription will be different from everyone else's. Neurodiversity is the umbrella term that includes everyone. Neurodiversity is the range of neurotypes across the whole population. So that includes neurotypical people. So we are all on the range of neurodiversity, but we're not all neurodivergent. And because the terms are so interchanged, mm-hmm. I think it's understandable why people get confused and it's understandable why people say it trying to be kind, but actually it's anything but because it takes away the fact that we are living with debilitating conditions. And yes, there are the strengths, but you only get yeah. to harness those strengths and i a- I must say, not everyone has strength. So you cannot assume that everyone, Of course. and I certainly don't call them superpowers for for that very reason. You know, some people have strengths as well as challenges. Some people just have the challenges and life is just really tough. But we mustn't take away from anyone the conditions that they are living with on a daily basis.
0: I would really want to talk to you, Lisa, about, you know, your role as an ADHD coach. But you're after raising something really, really important there, and that's language. What are terms or language that you like to hear, and what's language that you don't like to hear and wish that we could simply erase it? And also, I'd like to know as well is, as people living with ADHD and autism, how does that language make you feel?
2: So, with ADHD, something that you you still hear, and probably more in the states than in the UK, because ADHD. Is almost a, a newer term in, in the UK in general. Um, but people still call it ADD. Oh. Now, ADD medically hasn't been a term for I think it's about 20 years. But because it used to be a term, people are still used to that. So ADD as a, as a clinical term does not exist anymore. It, it's ADHD and it has three types, which is primarily inattentive, primarily hyperactive or combined. And the primarily inattentive is what used to be called ADD, attention deficit disorder, because there wasn't the hyperactive mm. element. So for me, I think just trying to use one term for something, if there is only one term now, the fact that people will still say, oh, I've got ADD, not ADHD, just adds confusion mm-hmm. into the discussions. Um, but Contra to that is autism, where I call it autism. I say I'm autistic. I don't say I have autism. Again, it's a personal preference. So I also say I'm autistic and ADHD. I don't say I have ADHD because it's like saying I have a cold and tomorrow I won't have a cold. To me, it's integral to who I am. But as language, ADHD doesn't work as a description. So you have autism and autistic. Mm you have ADHD and <laughs> there's kind of a gap. So so it's natural for people to say, I have ADHD. Um, so for me, I'm starting to go kind of say I am ADHD and, and whether that will catch on or not. But for me, it's it's making that distinction that it's who I am. This is my neurotype. Mm. It, it can't be, you can't have the Lisa without autism and ADHD. There's only one version of me. Um but autism also has; it's also referred to as ASD, which is autism spectrum disorder. These days, more people are starting to call it ASC, autism spectrum condition, which is more positive language. So, it's helpful to to see disorder being used less in the diagnostics. Um, but for each person, it's it's really about language that works for you and. Not getting so hung up on the language, apart from the term of we're all on the spectrum somewhere, which just, it's just, just don't say that. Um, but language in terms of quite often on social media, you will see someone start what's an attempt at a serious conversation on one of these topics. And it just gets completely hijacked yeah. by people saying, that's the wrong word. Oh, no, it's not. It's this word. And who are you to claim language? And of you course. think that wasn't what the post was about at all. And we're missing the opportunity to have really valuable discussions because everyone ends up arguing about who's got the right use of language. So I think being kind, giving grace to people that if people are trying to have the conversation, have the conversation, you can have a separate conversation if you need to, about your preferred language.
1: I'm learning quite a lot here about things like neurodivergence and neurodiversity and all these things these are these are still this this stuff still very new to me so um yeah I, I guess it's while I'm still getting to know the lingo people can kind of say what they want I still I still say I have ADHD um I might start trying to change that lingo because it's it's a good point it's not something I can get rid of so um and I probably need people to understand it's more part of my personality but no I guess for me la- language isn't something that's that's come up for me o- only the only thing that 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 annoys me is, is when people just start harping on at me about actually it's a made up thing. And actually, it's because you ate too many oh, smarties as a child or whatever it is. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's super unhelpful. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, a, that's another one. I did have someone once say to me, it's probably because you grew up in this part of the UK where the, uh, the farm, the farming, the farmlands that you were eating off causes caused you to have ADHD. It's like, really? Did it?
0: It's, it's very difficult to even counter conversations like that. So disengage, disengage, (laughs) disengage. Um, so, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Lisa, you know, your role as an ADHD coach, how does, how do you see stigma in the workplace for people with ADHD?
2: So you see it in, in very many places and, and in expectations of what people can and can't do and how they will and won't do things. Um, As Rose mentioned earlier, that the thing about you you just need to be able to get to work on time or just get up earlier. Just, 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 it's always the just, if you just did this, why don't you just buy a planner? Have you ever thought about planning? Wow. (laughs) I had never considered that. I've made it to 48 and I've never thought, why don't I just buy a planner? That would solve all of those problems. (laughs) <laughs> and i think in the workplace with the best of intentions again people can try to put those kind of things in place to support staff and and it can be okay we'll we'll put you on a course that will teach you how to do time management and again that's very transactional very formulaic way to do time management yeah. it's not about the actual logical understanding of how to manage time it simply doesn't work that way. A lot of the work that I do is around talks and training to employers, mm. um partly just to raise the awareness of neurodiversity in general um of what the conditions mean because whilst we talk about it all day because we're in this area, you know it it is our special interest because we live with it. Mm. But but also we therefore surround ourselves with people who are also talking about it and who are more aware of it. There is still a huge lack of awareness and understanding in the workplace. That you have some employers who are really forward thinking, mm. and very very many who are just a bit clueless and, and who really really need to understand it more. Not least of all because from from an employer's perspective, these are protected by law. Autism, ADHD, clinically diagnosed, they are disabilities and they are covered by the Equality Act 2010 and businesses need to really get with that 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 by just disregarding them, by, by even using the language of that's not a thing or you should be able to do this. If someone came to you to the workplace and they were in a wheelchair, mm. no one yeah. ever would say, just try harder and you'll be able to climb those stairs no, we can't put a wider door in. It, you know, it's, it's not convenient to us to yeah. do that for you. You just would not have that conversation.
0: When you go to workplaces and you're supporting workplaces to make things better for their employees that have ADHD, and I think by, by and large, you'll probably end up making it better for other people too throughout your work. But what are the sort of recommendations you make in, in general? I know every workplace is different, but what are some of the key things that people ask and what are the recommendations that you make in that regard in your role as an ADHD coach?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, As you say, everyone is different, but you're also correct that putting in place some of these adjustments for people is beneficial to very many people. And it's looking at the workplace as a whole, and looking at your workforce as a whole, and um, some of the things are really straightforward, but also don't spring to mind. and something that that I learned long before I had my diagnosis was simple things like where do people want to sit? Mm. And that sounds really obvious, but because I started off in audit, we would be off and about at clients the whole time, and then when we came back into the office, we would just have one massive table for all the trainees and we'd all sit around this table and then the managers as you got more senior you got to sit at kind of the actual desks and then the more senior you were the closer to a window you could sit because they were the better desks and I always wanted to sit in a corner and with my back against a wall Mm. and I still do that to this day that would even in in restaurants wherever we go my preference would always be a corner, if possible, and if not, at least with my back against the wall. And I now recognize that's because I have sensory processing issues, and that if I've got sounds behind me, I cannot focus on what you're saying because my brain just cannot zone out all of those things. It's trying to listen to everything all at once. And so, and also, I need that visual awareness. I don't like to feel that people might be behind me. They also might not be, but it causes me anxiety, wondering if someone is behind me. And again, it's not because I had anything on my screen. People think, oh, are you on Amazon shopping all day? You know, not at all. I was just doing my work. But but just that thought that that I might not know that someone is there looking over my shoulder. Open plan offices can be a bit of a nightmare mm-hmm. for people with autism and ADHD, either because of the number of distractions, but also... Particularly for autism, people like to have kind of the control. They like to know what the environment's going to be like. So, the idea that each day you don't know where you're sitting and you've got to get all your things out again and you've got to adjust everything again, that can just send you into complete sensory overload. So, that recognition of saying, even if you've got hot desks in an office, you might say, but actually, for a certain number of people, they just need a static desk. Mm -hmm. They need to know where they are. They need their things there. They need to know that. One day they won't be too hot and the next day they won't be sat under an air conditioner that's going to just make them cold, make them uncomfortable. It's simple things like that. And people can wear noise cancelling headphones if they need to. There's, There's a perception that people are not working properly if they've got headphones on, for example. Again, it's like, it's just nonsense. If that's what someone needs to make them comfortable, you will be able to tell if people are working and if they're achieving what you need them to it shouldn't be based on that this is how you have to look in an office. This, this is, you know, this is perfect office Barbie who looks like this and has this suit on and doesn't wear headphones and does this and comes in at nine and goes at five and, and it's just not like that.
0: Rose, Lisa said a lot there. Did any of that resonate?
1: I had a really interesting conversation, I remember, when I first got my diagnosis and I spoke with an employer at the time and, uh, and they and I sort of spoke with manager there and they said well um what provisions are you talking about here when I said I'd like to I'd like to make some changes and I kind of listed them and I said these things would really help me none of them cost anything none of them would impact the business in any way they were all really small things one of them funnily enough was hot desking I said I really struggle with hot desking um I need to have a certain amount of stuff around me all these chairs are different um so I'm sometimes not comfortable and yeah I just don't I don't like it. And also I asked about the flexible, um, working time and etc. None of these things were going to make a big impact. None of it was going to lose to any business. And her response was, um, well, okay, but if we, uh, if we make provisions for you, then really we have to make provisions for everyone. And oh, I said, gosh. good, that's great. Why don't you speak to everyone and ask them what they want? After that, it was so much easier because the changes were made. We all got our own desks. Everyone was happier. And there were other things put in place as well, which was like the flexible start and finish times. And for me, I came in early and finished early. um, And sometimes I'd do the opposite. And if you just talk to your employees, they'll tell you what they want. And sometimes you won't be able to accommodate. And that's the case with people with disabilities and not. At the end of the day, there's some things that you physically can't change.
2: And I was going to come back on that. That's a similar point, actually, when when Ray said about you ask for something, i say, oh, if we give you that, everyone will want it or we'll have to give that to everyone. Coming back to the wearing glasses or needing a ramp for a wheelchair or a wider door, they would never say, oh, you can't have glasses for work because then everyone's going to want glasses, or you can't have a wider door because everyone will want a wider door. No, they won't because they don't need that adjustment. Mm Mm-hmm. So the fact that it's even perceived that the adjustments that we ask for are somehow things that it's almost like they're seen as perks rather than adjustment or everyone will want that. That's a special Mm -hmm. perk. No, it's a considered adjustment to support disability and everyone won't want it. Some people might want it, but not for a valid reason, Not, not to support them, but because they think, oh, that sounds nice. But it's looking at it from that perspective of of understanding that these are medical conditions that we're asking for adjustments for. It's not thinking, "Oh, what would just make for a really nice life."
1: It's it's very interesting you you say that as well because actually that's kind of in a in a previous industry, and I'm so lucky that right now where I I work, I work in an agency uh, in a in a website development agency, and kind of the agency world in general in tech is kind of quite led by neurodivergent people. So, Mm. you know, I'd say a good 50% of people who work in my company are very open about the fact they have something like ADHD or autism. And it's, it's just kind of a a regular sort of thing here. So um, a lot of the provisions have been put in place already. And we a lot of people wear headphones. It's not uncommon to see people wearing headphones. We don't have a dress code. We don't have hot desking because my goodness, no one would cope with hot desking. They're obsessed with their computers. And there's so much in place that this this company has put in place naturally that has not damage them at all. It has not cost them anything. And they're achieving amazing results with amazing people by not putting in much effort. So it's, yeah, it's very often just listening to your employees. It's it's not. And actually, I think if, you, if people could just do that in general, we'd cover off a lot more than ADHD when listening to employees.
0: So important. And even like, you know, it's almost that transition from the, you know, the analogy is your father's way of doing business to you know business in the modern world that accounts for everyone from every background with any condition you know it's it's important to listen to people, accommodate them, and ultimately you know you get increased productivity i mean it's kind of a it's a win win right make accommodations for people, make them happy um you know unfortunately we are and we're not going to get into a philosoph- philosophical debate about capitalism, but we are going down a capitalist rabbit hole and you want capitalism to succeed, you make people happy. <laughs> I mean, we may all eventually end in a ball of flame, but hey, whatever. Um, so, the last thing I wanted to ask, and, you know, Rose, you kind of sparked an addition to this question, was about digital resources. Uh, you know, we're developing programs for a whole range of conditions, for a whole, whole range of lifestyles. Um, and our ADHD program is one of them. But, I think an ADHD program in regards to teaching people self-management skills would be invaluable, right? If you think of the person who is perhaps newly diagnosed, perhaps they may be similar to Lisa in the, in the way that Lisa, you seem to have read a whole bunch of books and were like super informed by the time you arrived at your diagnosis or like just shortly after, but. In one, do you both think these sorts, where do you see a place for these sorts of tools, uh, toolkits, interventions, if you want to call them that way? And the second thing is from what both of you have said, it's almost like self-efficacy building is massively important to be able to ask your employer for these accommodations, to be able to ask people to, you know, I might be 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes late. I need you to accept this of me, to build in confidence in that regard to to ask that. How important do you think the self-efficacy component is in a toolkit that's teaching you sort of self-management skills for the newly diagnosed ADHD person?
2: I think, as you say, I I researched a lot before I went for my diagnosis and, and that was really helpful, um, not least because I had the absolute opposite experience from Rose in that I had to do the convincing to be able to get my diagnosis because I wasn't visibly hyperactive and I wasn't struggling at school and I had made it to 40 without any suggestion of any of these things. So I I really had to go in there and, and almost present the dossier of here's the evidence now I'd like you to put me forward for a diagnosis.
0: And Rose, I'd like to ask you the same, uh, just to close us out. What do you think?
1: With the resources side of things, um, I feel like the, the, the facts side would be awesome. And also I feel like we, sh- there should be something around frequently asked questions or rather frequently unwanted questions because I, I, I don't have all the facts all the time, actually being able to have a good response, um, to that would be really helpful like when someone says aren't we all a little bit ADHD having a good scientific response to that because it is it is something you can't always see and sometimes I don't have the and when I'm asked by a friend or a colleague I don't have the right answer to kind of explain the absolute nightmare that ADHD can be so that would be really helpful with some some facts around it.
0: Amazing, folks. I just want to thank you both for you know joining us today and talking to us about your experience and all in between. So that's all we have time for. And that's us. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Dan. It's been real fun. Thank you.
0: SilverCloud by Amwell has launched a program to support people with ADHD over the age of 16. The program has been designed to support people to better manage their diagnosis using cognitive behavioral therapy. The program will guide and support people to improve their organization, attention, problem solving, and better understand their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. We also have other programs around neurodiversity, including supporting a child with ADHD, and are working to create more programs to support people with autism. You can listen back to all the previous episodes of CB Talks online. Feel free to rate and review to help others discover it too. Thank you and goodbye.